Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Thursday, April the 14th, 2022. This is Maundy Thursday of Holy Week. would really encourage you to get into the Word of God today. Um, the events of this day and the day that follows. So the Thursday, um, it was on the Thursday of Holy Week that you know preparations for the Passover feast were made. Um, it is on Thursday that we gather with Jesus in an upper room with his disciples for what we understand to be the Last Supper. The foot washing is a part of that. There's then this walk through the Kidron Valley uh, across to um, the Garden of of Gethsemane, the events that unfold there resulting in uh, culminating in the arrest of Jesus. And so I really, I want us to be walking with Jesus today. Um, not just, you know, the way we walk with Jesus today, right, as people who understand the resurrection and have received the goodness of God's grace in that, but walk with Jesus um, on the way to the cross today. Walk with Jesus on the way to the cross today. If you're not already doing so, let me encourage you to join us in reading the Bible together during this Holy Week. Lots of resources posted on that topic, a podcast, a downloadable reading resource, a prayer guide, all of it available for free at MyFaithRadio.com. So the uh, New York City subway shooter has been apprehended. Police have arrested 62-year-old Frank James in the Brooklyn subway shooting uh, where he fired his Glock 9mm 33 times after detonating a smoke grenade. Dozens of people were injured, um, but none of the injuries are life-threatening, which is near miraculous. Um Mr. James departed the train with other passengers. He crossed over the platform. He boarded another train and rode one stop where he got off. He disposed of the vest and the hard hat that he had been wearing. And then apparently he just walked around the streets of New York until he called Crime Stoppers himself to tell the police yesterday, hey, I'm at a McDonald's. Um, When they arrived, he wasn't actually inside the McDonald's, but they simply had to drive around the block and found him standing on the street corner and where they took him into custody without incident. Um, they say he called Crime Stoppers uh, himself. Um, there are other Crime Stopper calls as well, um, but it's certainly the one from Mr. James himself that led police to him yesterday afternoon. The suspect, Frank James, will appear in court today. YouTube has taken down the videos um, which he posted uh in his route from Ohio to Pennsylvania over the course of uh, a week. And, um, and there's a lot going on in this, uh, in this story there. uh, This is a person with a long criminal rap sheet questions about how he was able to legally buy a firearm in Ohio 10 years ago or 11 years ago. Um, but he never had a felony conviction. And so, um, 
that answers that question legally. Uh, I must confess the entire incident does not inspire confidence in the system. From the fact that he was able to board a metro subway train, um, having passed through um, what certainly should be uh, spaces and places where an armed individual would be recognized by a metal detector or some other um, some other means of recognizing that someone is boarding a mass transit train in New York City um, with weapons, not just one weapon, but lots of weapons, that he could carry out the attack with no functioning cameras on the platform or in the train capturing it, that he could depart the train and board another train, I mean, technically to flee the scene, although he doesn't really appear to flee in, uh, in, in accounts by others, and then just walk around in New York City for 30 hours? While, by their own admission, hundreds of detectives and other law enforcement officers were looking for him, only to finally call the tip line himself to tell them where to find him. So um, it does not inspire confidence in the system. For all of the celebrating that it only took them 30 hours to capture him, um, it's not as if the system worked. The guy called Crime Stoppers himself. So um, why, why bring all of this up and share it in this way? Because the world is um, full of distressed individuals with access not only to weapons, but um, in, in Mr. James's case, uh, his own self-disclosed PTSD and a dependence upon alcohol and a history of violence and crime. Um, my guess is mental health is going to play some role in the conversations related to this. Uh, he is now in federal custody. Um, I believe that the... Uh, the charges against him yesterday have now been amplified to in, include terrorism because it took place on a mass transit um, system, which the federal government's obviously very concerned about. So we have a lot of headlines to cover today, um, but I want to draw us uh, to prayer and just recognize that the days in which we live are violent times, not just in Ukraine, but right here in the United States of America. Um, and we, we need to be praying for people's redemption. There will be no peace where there is no Jesus. And to know Jesus, K-N-O-W, is to know peace. It is to know the peace which passes all understanding. It is to be people who are possessed of peace, and it is to be people who are peacemakers. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. This is my right. Joining us now, Ben Johnson. He is the rights writer. He's also a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. And um, holy Thursday to you. Uh, I hope uh, for all those who are celebrating that this is a most joyful holy week uh, for all of you and uh, leading into the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ celebrated uh, around the world on this coming Sunday for most of you. Amen. Amen. I know. Yeah. And it's uh, and when you say it that way, we are reminded that the calendar is different. So just remind us, when will Orthodox Christians be celebrating Easter? Uh, for us this year, it's next Sunday. So not this coming Sunday, but a week after. And, okay. uh, which, you know, that's, which matters, that's just in which matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which matters, though, because we are paying attention to a part of the world 
um, in terms of Eastern Europe, where there are many, many, many Orthodox Christians. And so we just need to be mindful. They're not celebrating Easter this week. Uh, for, for them, next week is Holy Week. And for them, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And so I just think it's good to be mindful of that as we are praying for um, people around the world and in, in their particular context. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I wish that we had a more joyful celebration, but hopefully uh, as we mm-hmm. focus on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we'll understand, as you were saying at the end of the last segment, that war is incompatible with the Prince of Peace and that everything that is happening in this fratricidal war between two countries that are putatively Christian and Orthodox Christian uh, is in violation of everything that this coming two-week period stands for. Mm. Amen. Amen. Ben, um, bring us up to date on what is happening in Oklahoma um, in relationship to abortion. Yeah, uh, the governor there, Kevin Stitt, has signed a bill that uh, would essentially make it illegal to perform a surgical or a chemical abortion except to save a mother's life. So any other uh, performing of an abortion uh, would would result in a legal penalty. The bill doesn't punish any woman, but abortionists uh, who perform an abortion other than in that uh, very limited circumstance would face up to 10 years in prison and a $100,000 fine. Uh, that bill, Senate Bill 612, passed with the support of 80 percent of both chambers of the state legislature. And, uh, you know, he, he as he signed this bill, uh, Governor Stitt said, as governor, I represent all four million Oklahomans. They overwhelmingly support protecting life in the state of Oklahoma. We want Oklahoma to be the most pro-life state in the country. So uh, really, this focuses our, our attention on a couple of things. The people who say that our democracy is under assault are right now busy calling on judges to overturn this bill, supported by 80% of legislators, almost 100% of Oklahomans, frankly. It's an incredibly popular bill. Uh, So you can tell that perhaps democracy is not actually in the forefront of their minds on every issue. This is democracy in action. Democracy means the majority rules. The majority gets its way. And in Oklahoma, this is the will of the majority. But uh, there was something... Higher than that, uh, when when Governor Kitts, uh, Governor Stitt, I should say, signed the bill, he was at a desk with a poster that said, "Life is a human right," and that is really the focus of what's happening with the right to life. Uh, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki also portrayed it as a, a battle of rights. She said, and "This is a quote: This is part of a disturbing national attack, uh, the part of a disturbing national trend attacking women's rights." So the overwhelming majority of abortions worldwide, of course, target girls. Uh, and because most societies accord girls less value than boys, wrongly, obviously, but that's that's the cultural dynamic at play in uh, sex-selective and gender side uh, throughout the world. All other rights are contingent on the right to life. No other right gets to be exercised without the right to be born. And so the real focus of this is whether a law protects our unalienable rights or whether it violates our rights. And ultimately, this bill is protecting the right to life around the world, uh, and particularly in the state of Oklahoma, for people to be born. Uh, People who say that there's a battle of rights are are dealing with this invented Roe v. Wade standard, uh, which recognizes a right that was never in the Constitution, the Founding Fathers never intended. Ultimately, all of this is sort of a, a mindset that is the same problems underlying so many of our national problems. It's a refusal to give up the adolescent belief that we can have self-indulgence without consequences. 
In reality, mm. every decision that we have has consequences. Every choice we make brings consequences. How could it be different for the activity that God designed as the most intimate act of self-giving, which is also his mechanism for the continuation of the human race, not to have consequences that we would have to deal with and not to, uh, to focus our actions, our attentions, our choices and decisions around the potential consequences they could bring for us in the world. So this is, this is a wonderful consequence that in this particular state, he's recognizing the right to life. The state has recognized the right to life. Obviously, there's going to be a major court battle, and I think ultimately this will, will end up being its own separate court case, regardless of what's decided by Dobbs. But at least uh, this governor and this state is saying life is a human right. Amen. Um, amen. If you missed the 60 Minutes episode on Sunday night um, where President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was interviewed, um, he talks about the fight right now is a fight for the right to live, uh, the fight for a right to life, and that uh, it is a costly fight. It's a good reminder as well of what's going on in Ukraine. We're talking with Ben Johnson. We're going to pivot next to consequences related to spending, and we're going to talk about inflation. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Come to the table and taste of the glory and savor the sorrow. He's dying tomorrow. Continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson, you can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. All right, Ben, inflation. How do I adjust my brain to 8.5%? Uh, this is going to be an incredibly difficult undertaking, needless to say. 8.5% uh, inflation, that's the highest level of inflation since December of 1981. And so uh, people who uh, have a memory that goes back that far know how we adjusted in the 70s and 80s. But uh, uh, frankly, uh, what is happening for a lot of people uh, is that uh, mentally the companies are doing everything they can to keep us from focusing on inflation. Uh, one of the ways they're doing that is through uh, something known as shrinkflation, where the prices stay the same, you just get less. <laughs> so that's one of the uh, psychological tricks that's being used right now uh, among companies. Uh, so you know, they realize that people don't necessarily know whether it's 13 ounces in the bag or 16 ounces in the bag uh, that they used to buy. You know, we have a general sort of vague sense that we're getting less, but um, you know, we, we don't necessarily have the metrics. It's like in 1984 where uh, Winston Smith knows everything has changed. He just can't quite remember how it used to be. Uh, it, it's the same thing happening here. Uh, for for all of us, uh, everyone is sort of um, uh, going through a massive behavior modification. CNBC uh, has an article out uh, talking about how, uh, according to Moody's, U.S. households are spending at least $327 a month extra now due to inflation. Half of all adults say that they're cutting back as a result. Uh, I'll let you guess which half. Mm -hmm. That might be a good Twitter question. Or which half are you in? Are you among the half that's cutting back because of inflation? But uh, yeah, that's that's the fact here. Uh, in most cases, what uh, people are cutting back from are things like eating out and and uh, they're cutting back on subscriptions, streaming services, things of that sort. Uh, however, there's a sort of a concerning statistic. Uh, first of all, they survey what do you plan to cut back from? And you know, there's a large increase in, in what people will be reducing. But then they say, what have you already done? And there's actually a higher percentage of people who have already cut back their consumption on a lot of things. The one, the one thing that really concerned me uh, is that uh, about 20% uh, of people 
say they've already borrowed or they have uh, taken out extra credit cards to transfer the debt to credit cards, which is a terrible move, financially speaking. Mm. Uh, you know, you're talking about massive amounts of, of uh, inflation, uh, but then you're talking about 18 uh, percent interest rates or, or higher in some cases. Uh, so that's concerning. But then about uh, 9 percent of Americans say they just couldn't pay a bill. And so they, they let it go for a month or two. Uh, this is this is incredibly highly concerning. So uh, someone who has had that experience in the last six months before inflation uh, was was really up and roaring. Uh, I think that things are only going to get worse over the next couple of months uh, because we haven't learned our lesson. Again, we're talking about that problem of the adolescent mindset of self-indulgence without consequence. We saw a five point eight trillion dollar budget proposal from the president last month, knowing everything that was here course, the government compiles these statistics, so he knew them before anybody else. And yet, uh, you know, we're, we're drowning. And the idea is here, have some more water. Yeah, reducing consumption, taking on more debt, um, leaving time in between um, when bills are paid or not paying bills, you know, quite on time. Um, those might be short term strategies. But, you know, it occurs to me, Ben, that like more than 50 percent of the U.S. population was not even alive uh, the last time inflation was this high. So they they don't know. They don't know that those like zero percent credit card offers where, you know, you can just move credit card debt from one thing to another. They don't know that, you know, th- those aren't guaranteed like that. That can go away as well. Like you're not going to get any more of those. So you may be thinking that may be your plan. Like I'm just going to keep transferring credit card debt from one thing to another because they're going to keep sending me those zero percent offers. No, they're not. They're not. They don't have to do that anymore. Um, money just got way more expensive. And I know that seems it, it, and it got less valuable at the same time. Uh, money got less expensive and more value or, or less valuable at the same time. And I, I don't think people understand that. It's math that is just not in the rationale of a lot of American consumers. And it hasn't had to be. Uh, you know, we have had uh, an artificially juiced economy by the Federal Reserve for going on two decades now. Uh, yeah, this this is a completely artificial. It's it's like basing your entire workout on an artificial sugar high, and thinking that that's your energy level. I mean, this this is not sustainable. Uh, a lot of us have been saying for a very long time, this is artificial. It's not sustainable. This isn't real economic growth. And when the Federal Reserve takes its foot off the accelerator, all the artificial growth is going to go away. And uh, frankly, that's that's always painful. But the sooner that that happens, the better. And the fact that this day of reckoning happened to come at a time where we had massive inflation due to overspending, due to um, so-called uh, you know, COVID uh, strategies that uh, were there to protect us from COVID, um, uh, purportedly at any rate, mm-hmm. to, you know, to, save the, to save the economy from the problem the government created uh, by shutting everything down. Uh, we, we, have, uh, we have had all this terrible confluence of events that is taking its toll, particularly on the poorest people, uh, which should tell us that um, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where no one has infinite information except for our Lord. And so we cannot trust anyone to simply put their hand on the economy and perfectly balance everything and take everything into consideration that needs to be taken. No one has that kind of insight and no one has that kind of purity of intention. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to direct people to the piece you have posted at dailywire.com, The Five Worst Nations for Christian Persecution. Um, take a minute, Ben, and um, and tell us why it matters that we pay attention to what's happening to Christians around the world. 
Well, thank you, and I appreciate that very much. We're all part of the one body of Christ, and it says if anything that happens to one member, the entire body suffers. And the body of Christ is extended from end to end, age, one age to the other, and from one part of the globe across to the other. Uh, there were more than 5,800 Christians killed last year, which is a significant increase over 2020, and you're seeing an intensifying persecution. Just two things I thought really summed it up. North Korea has been number one on the Open Doors USA's annual list of the worst persecuting anti-Christian nations in the world. And this year it fell to number two, even though things got worse there. Things got worse, and it's not the worst country in the world. That's how bad things have gotten elsewhere in the world. Uh, the number one on the list is, of course, Afghanistan because of the Taliban takeover and the crackdowns that we're seeing, not just on young girls, but uh, particularly on Christians and people who convert uh, often secretly, but if it leaks out, people who convert from Islam to Christianity are targeted for social sanctions, uh, usually by the local clan or local families. But the government is at least turning a blind eye now that the Taliban is in power. In some cases, there is active persecution. So we need to pray for our brothers around the world who are suffering as a result of this, uh, both uh, particularly in, in uh, the, the nations that are listed as the top five, Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen, but uh, everywhere around the world. And I would, I would just say the Open Doors USA report, you can get it for free from opendoorsusa.org. It is outstanding, and it is made for prayer. It's got 50 different countries, and it's got seven prayer uh, seven different areas you can pray for every day. So mm -hmm. if you do the math, that's basically one a day almost every day of the year. I love it. All right, you guys can find that and the link to it um, in Ben's article, easy to find at dailywire.com, the five worst nations for Christian persecution. Ben, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. You too. Blessed Easter next week. We're talking um, about the headlines of the day. We're bringing the mind of Christ to bear. Let's hear from uh, Max Lucado at Upwards. This is my body given for you. This is the So you guys are always welcome to email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. You know you can text me during the show, 877 so a listener yesterday reminded me um, that it had been a while since I had called us to pray for President Putin's salvation. And so I want to do that. Um, I'm recalling that on February 18th, Franklin Graham did that, called for Christians around the world to pray for the salvation of Vladimir Putin. Um, and Franklin Graham got a serious pushback that he was not only wrong, but in fact, um, that he was, you know, that what he was calling for was, uh, was ridiculous. But he, he was far from wrong. In fact, he was righteously right. So his calls for prayer and peace that were met with skepticism and derision from liberals on social media um, made me wonder, did we do it? Did we pray with him for Vladimir Putin's salvation? Did you? Did I? I'm wondering... Um, if his appeal met not only skepticism and derision from liberals on social media, but whether or not it met real skepticism and even derision from Christians around the world. So with that in mind, we're going to pray for the salvation of Vladimir Putin. Holy, infinite, and sovereign God, we plead in the name of Jesus that you would reveal yourself to Vladimir Putin in a way that he cannot deny and will not resist. 
Send your Holy Spirit to melt his heart of stone. Soften his stiff neck. Woo him to yourself, O God. In this holy week, change this one heart. Demonstrate your redemptive power to bring peace and justice on earth as it is in heaven. We plead with you, Father, in the name of Jesus, by whatever means necessary, bring Vladimir Putin to the point where he cannot deny the reality of your presence, the reality of your power, the reality of your grace, the reality of the cross, the reality of your love. Convict him of his sin and bring him with us to the foot of the cross this Holy Week. All of this we pray in the powerful and saving name of Jesus, your Son, who alone is our Savior and Lord, Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dan DeWitt joins us next with the Easter Worldview Reader. Dan DeWitt is back. Uh, He is joining us a day early to share with us an Easter worldview reader. You can find it all at theolatte.com. Dan, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be back with you. So take us into um, your Easter reflection on the garden. So in... In the small group that my wife and I go to at our church, we, we've been studying through Isaiah, and we came across the passage in Isaiah where God tells Isaiah to, you know, gives him this song, and it's God's song that Isaiah presents, and it's about God's vineyard and how God loves his vineyard, and yet he's going to allow enemies to come in and invade this garden. And in talking about that with our church members and our friends at our church, I just began reflecting on, you know, this motif of the garden throughout the Bible, how really it begins, the whole thing begins in a beautiful garden that God designed for humanity to dwell in his presence. And then throughout the Bible, you have these different kind of glimpses of the garden being restored. Even in the temple, the designs for the temple have these ornate kind of botanical elements, even in the design, so that the temple itself would feel a bit like a garden. Um, we have Noah, who after the flood, the first thing he does is he builds a garden, and he gets drunk, which results in him giving a curse on his grandson, Canaan. And again, we have a fallen humanity in a garden, and we have a curse. And so you just see this throughout the Bible, the, the fallenness and brokenness of humanity, and yet there's always this kind of glimmer of hope leading all the way up to Jesus, who prayed for us in a garden, who after his crucifixion was buried in a tomb in a garden, who his first, his, the first people to see him after the resurrection saw him in a garden. And we see all of history concludes with a new creation in which there's another garden and we're able to dwell in God's presence. So I reflected on that, and man, it just moves me to think about how that motif ties the entire Bible together from beginning to end. Yeah, the garden motif is one I turn to frequently when I talk about, you know, like, what are we cultivating in our lives? If we want to um, see a harvest of righteousness, then we need to be, you know, we need to be sowing seeds of that in the culture. When we talk about um, engaging the culture, we are talking about the act of cultivation 
Um, and sometimes, you know, we have to uh, dig up rocks and sometimes we have to break up hard soil. Um, but there are certainly seasons in which having planted seeds of peace, we have to wait um, and we have to tend and we have to prune and we have to be pruned. And there's just so much um, in this uh, in this garden motif, in this conversation that we can have, lifting up passages of Scripture and weaving them into the conversations of the day. Yeah, and that's a good reminder, too. I mean, Adam and Eve were commanded to what we call the cultural mandate um, to cultivate and to be stewards of this. And then Noah, that's, that's reestablished with Noah, this command to um, subdue creation. And I think that's one of the ways Christians can think about, just like you said, Carmen, in terms of our role in society, to see the kingdom of God spread that we're, we're cultivating. And um, as we cultivate, I, I remember hearing one person say, we reap what we sow, we reap after we sow, and we reap more than we sow. And to make sure that we're sowing a godly influence of salt and light in the culture, recognizing God's made us in charge of our own little personal garden um, as we see his kingdom spread, even through our own lives. Mm, I love that. Um, let's um, let's return to that topic again and again this spring, as um, and, and maybe even through the seasons of the year. I hope you will return to this topic with us, because I think that it is you know, it's worthy of of, um, of further tilling, let's say. Mm. Um, but let's turn now to this uh, this very public testimony um, of and about Tim Keller. It appears in the New York Times, which is not always a place we think of turning to see the Christian witness, uh, you know, sort of laid bare in public. So take us into this New York Times opinion piece um, about Tim Keller. Well, Tim Keller, of course, is an influential pastor in New York City. He's been helpful for so many to make sense of belief in God. His books on um, making sense of God, the reason for God, have been helpful for a number of people. And so Tim Keller has been, I think, in a lot of ways, the standard for what it looks like to have a winsome, faithful Christian witness in the public square. His battle with cancer, he's been very public with as well, and how his faith has only been enhanced and strengthened through this struggle. And so this article highlights, as other articles have done, the way that this pastor is living out his faith. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that's not—it it might feel for the outside world looking in and listening to conversations like this as it's almost morbid. We're focusing on the death of Jesus, but it's in light of the resurrection— that Christians find their hope. And this is not peripheral to the Christian faith. It's the very center of the Christian faith. And for a pastor who's preached this, Tim Keller's living out his faith by finding hope, even in the midst of this disease, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It occurred to me as I was reading this, and again, you guys can find this in the New York Times. It's an opinion piece um, on Tim Keller and cancer and Easter um, it, it bears very public testimony to him as a living witness. Um, it occurs to me, Dan, that uh, he's he's the right person for God to use. This resurrection testimony, you know, on the lips of Tim Keller rings so true because he's so well known to not only a watching, but an often skeptical and cynical world. Like he is well known to the world already. Mm-hmm. And as you say, he's now bearing this public witness in the midst of grave diagnosis, like pancreatic cancer is no, you know, that's no fool's errand. And, mm-hmm. um, and yet in the midst of this, he's, 
his faith rings true. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. We often focus on the people whose faith does not ring true. And so I'm just so thankful for this opportunity to lift up one whose faith rings true and that it's getting positive coverage in the secular press. Absolutely. And, and for people who may not know this, at, you know, as a church planner, he planted Redeemer Church there in New York City several years ago. He was the pastor who was called upon after 9-11 um, in that the, the service they did um, at Ground Zero. Tim Keller was the pastor who gave testimony there. And so to, to see someone who has been faithful to speak in a time of national crisis um, and even global crisis as it relates to global terrorism, but then on a very personal level to be able to say um, in the midst of his own struggle, um, God is good and we could trust him. Yeah, it's one thing, um, you know, to to be able to find the courage and the words and the grace to speak at, you know, public ground zero, 9-11. Um, mm. uh, but it's a whole nother thing to allow the world to watch you do it in your own, you know, in your own personal version of 9-11, whatever that is. Mm. And so, uh, you know, we're lifting this up today so that you will be encouraged in your own walk of faith um, Tim Keller is a brother in Christ, and he's he's being used of God right now in a very powerful way in the culture um, to offer this living witness, this powerful public testimony in the midst of his cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, he's bearing witness to the power of resurrection in Christ Jesus. We had we had occasion to talk with him um, here on the program. I, I I feel like it was about a year ago now, um, talking not only about Easter but about his Easter reflections related to his uh, his diagnosis and living with cancer and dying with cancer. Um, and so you can find that podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. I will track it down and tee it up in my social media as well. Dan DeWitt and I are going to take a very, very brief pause. When we come back, we're going to talk about another post that he has at Theolatte.com, the link between the resurrection and the Bible. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. So, yes, it was a year ago, March the 11th, that we had a conversation here with Tim Keller on air about uh, hope in times of fear. So you can check that out at MyFaithRadio.com. Dan, in surveying what you have posted in the Easter Worldview Reader uh, at Theolatte.com, I'm interested in this this post um, that I'm pulling up now and have clicked upon. It's an Easter letter. An Easter letter and the canon heard around the world. Help us see the connection between what Scripture says and the resurrection of Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Christians have always, from the earliest stages, connected the resurrection of Jesus um, to the Scriptures. So our earliest Christian creed that even atheist scholars will say had to be developed at the latest, within three years of the resurrection. And there's a number of atheist scholars—Robert Funk, um, who's the founder of the Jesus Seminar— um, Gerd Ludemann, who's an atheist scholar, they recognize the creed that Paul delivers in 1 Corinthians 15 is something he received shortly after his conversion, um, and it had to be developed very early on. And that creed says that Christ was buried, um, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is our earliest Christian creed. It is what was could be 
heard coming from the lips of the first disciples after the first Easter Sunday. So reading that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 to me is just an amazing thing to think about. Paul saying, I'm delivering to you what I received, and these are the words that they were first saying about the resurrected Jesus. So the article I wrote is about this link between the Bible and the resurrection, and it's really drawing attention to a, a letter a pastor wrote Um, in the 4th century. Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria, he was often exiled from his pastorate, so he would have to leave, and then he would come back, and he'd have to leave, and then he would come back. Um, As pastors did then, they would write letters to their um, church members um, throughout significant times of the year. And in the 4th century, he wrote a letter for Easter, and in it, he lists all of the books that we find in our New Testament. So we have a... um, we have an example of what we call the, the canon of the New Testament, and by canon, that just means this is the accepted list of books, the standard by which they recognize what was Scripture and what wasn't Scripture. So it's wonderful to see this in Athanasius's letter, but then what I try to unpack is even before the 4th century, we had a number of church leaders who were pointing to the books in the New Testament. So it's a great, wonderful thing. Easter is based on um, our view of Scripture, and we understand the resurrection of Jesus in light of that. And I outlined a number of earlier sources prior to the 4th century where we could see this love for Scripture and the resurrected Christ among Jesus's followers. I think there's a temptation, Dan, sometimes for um, people who have either been believers for a long time or were raised in the church, and so just assume. They assume. They assume the Easter story. They assume um, that people know that the um, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is attested to throughout the scriptures, that um, that it was prophesied, that it was fulfilled, that it's real, um, that scripture bears witness to it, that Christians have believed it since the very beginning and have persisted in that belief throughout the centuries. Um, it's not a new idea. It's not fakery. Um, it really happened. Uh, and it really is attested to in the, in, in the Bible. I think there's a lot of people who, as Christians— take that for granted. And so they roll their eyes when they hear us ask a question, what's the connection between the Bible or the scriptures and the resurrection? But it's a real question asked by real inquirers today, and they really deserve an honest answer, a thoughtful answer, and you have provided that. And so I just wanted to thank you for it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's wonderful that, you know, that I think sometimes Christians think we're in a position of weakness. And what I try to draw attention to, historical evidence isn't going to convert someone. Um, but there's plenty of historical evidence there for the resurrection of Jesus. And so use it. Um, and I'm not the one who generated this. There's a number of scholars that I point to who've done a lot of really hard work. So re- use the historical evidence in all the ways that it's helpful. But at the end of the day, we trust it's the gospel that's the power of God into salvation. Amen. Amen. All right. What else is in this week's Easter Worldview Reader at Theolatte.com that you would like to point to? Well, so I have a link to C.S. Lewis's, um, my favorite apologetics book by C.S. Lewis, not Mere Christianity, but his book Miracles, which he talks at length about the resurrection. And then at a more fundamental level, he talks about how can we believe that miracles are even possible? And so his book Miracles, a preliminary study, if you've not read that before, you just need to read it. It's it's wonderful. It's C.S. Lewis, so it's beautifully written, but he's defending 
um, the supernatural view that there's something outside of nature. I also have a link to a um, a doodle video. I wish I was the one to do this, but I'm not. So there's an artist who takes C.S. Lewis's writings and he puts them into doodle videos, and they have a British. Um, person who, uh, someone with a, a British accent who does the voiceover to it, and it's just wonderful. And so it's a passage where C.S. Lewis is talking about his trilemma. Um, either Jesus was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was a ward. So those are in the resources. Related to that, I've got an older article by Justin Taylor, who takes that argument by C.S. Lewis and kind of um, analyzes it, does an autopsy on it, and that's a really helpful, interesting link as well. Okay, and which one is that? Now that I'm that, oh, Justin Taylor, is C.S. Lewis's liar, lord, and lunatic argument unsound? I see it now. Yep. So all of this is listed for you, um, aggregated together. One stop, theolatte.com. You're looking for the Easter Worldview Reader. Don't miss Dan's writings, the Easter Reflection on the Garden, where we started this conversation um, also, the Easter letter and the canon heard around the world, which is the connection that's going to help equip you uh, to make that connection that inquirers are asking about today, seekers are wondering about, like, what is the resurrection of Jesus? And have Christians actually believed this from um, from the day Jesus rose from the dead? There's also an excellent piece called Five Facts About the Resurrection and another called The Most Dangerous Idea. So there's just all kinds of great stuff this week. And then um, these additional articles, books, and resources, this video um, as well, posted for you. And so please make use of this. That's why it's there. Um, and you can find it all at Theo Latte. That's like coffee. That's like God and coffee. Theolatte.com. <laughs> Dan, um, thank you so much. Blessed Easter to you. You too. Thanks, Carmen. The next time we talk, I'm going to get to say the Lord is risen, and you are going to get to say... The Lord is risen indeed. Oh, good. I thought maybe you had already hung up and I was going to be left hanging (laughs) for two weeks. All right. That's Dan DeWitt. Find him at Theolatte.com. We'll be right back. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must. All right, I've preserved a minute here to have a conversation about Ukraine because we didn't get to cover these headlines at the outset of the hour. Um, But let me brief you in. President Biden has announced the U.S. is sending another $800 million in military aid to Ukraine. Remember, the Congress already approved $14 billion in this direction. So this is uh, just another expression of how that is going to um, happen over time. This installment includes helicopters, armored vehicles, heavy weaponry. In fact, more heavy weaponry than we have previously provided. It comes as Ukraine is bracing for a new Russian offensive. Um, Ukrainian missiles took out Russia's Black Sea Fleet flagship yesterday. That is significant news. Multiple Ukrainian sources reported that the Moskva, which just means Moscow, which is a a flagship of the Russian fleet, um, was hit by two Neptune anti-ship cruise missiles fired from Odessa. Um, But due to large storms over the Black Sea, We haven't actually seen satellite imagery. What we know is that the Russians have abandoned ship. They say it is due to a fire on board that ignited uh, ammunition on board. And so uh, those who are looking at the situation recognize that this is a significant loss um, to not only Russia's naval power, but their morale and reputation 
uh, among the Russian public. And so this is a significant event um, in the war. Another significant event that is not taking place on the battlefield, but certainly is going to influence Russia in the midst of all of this, is that leaders from Finland and Sweden have been meeting to discuss joining NATO. Uh, They border uh, Russia. You know, they have like 800 miles of border with Russia. And Russia warned that if Finland and Sweden joined NATO, Russia would see that as a rebalance uh, of the situation and have to escalate. Uh, No one knows exactly what that means because it's hard to imagine how things could be escalated from where they are now. And for those of um, for those of you who have said to yourself, hey, you know, Russia's being increasingly isolated by the world. Everybody has sanctions against them. Nobody's buying from them. That that's not exactly true. Yes, some 30 nations, including the United States, um, Great Britain has actually just announced uh, increased sanctions yesterday. Um, And, yeah, there's lots of nations that are sanctioning Russia and not doing business with Russia. But China, China's trade with Russia increased 12 percent in just the last year. So um, Russia has some friends or at least some frenemies around the world. And not everybody thinks uh, about dictatorship the same way. So why do we think about government the way we think about government? Why do we think about what's happening in Ukraine the way we think about it? It's because of our worldview. It's because we believe that God has made it all and every person, regardless of where they're born or their status, is um, is an image bearer of the living God and therefore precious. We believe in a personal universe, which is why we take war personally. Russia does not. They have a different worldview. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Another hour of mornings with Carmen LaBerge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.